Thank you very much to Allison Green, uh, Dean of the Tisch School of the Arts. Woohoo! And of course, thank you to Dana Whitco for making this possible. So today's uh, talk is uh, a decade of change. New York City is global city. Um, and of course, part of living in New York is um, always talking about how much things have changed and how much better it was when you first got here or whatever. That's just part of living here. Um, but um, actually, <laughs> between 2004 and 2014, New York um, actually underwent a really significant transformation, um, possibly as significant as a transformation presided over by a previous Republican uh, three-term mayor, um, Fiorello LaGuardia. Um, and these changes, if you talk to people who have lived here for a while, they're like, I, you know, they're not merely anecdotal, they're real. Um, and um, they are fundamental and they can be explained. Um, so I first started looking into this as part of the Brooklyn Commune Project, uh, which was a uh, eight-month-long public research project into the economics of the performing arts. And, uh, it was inspired while I was working as the director of public programs at the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, um, where I worked with um, artists and major stakeholders in uh, New York's financial district. Uh, in 2012, I organized a panel called At the Intersection, Art, Money, and Politics, um, where Amy Whitaker, that's Amy Whitaker, she's a writer and a scholar. She has an MFA from Slade and an MBA from Yale, and she thinks a lot about uh, issues of economics and the arts. And she proposed, what if we looked at economics as a, a, a collective creative design problem? Um, and that inspired the Brooklyn Commune, um, which resulted in this report, The View From Here, which is available. It's like a 50-page uh, overview of the economic dilemma of the performing arts. So through Brooklyn Commune and everything else, I've been investigating you know, what happened over the past 10 years, and um, how did it happen, what happened, and what does it mean for artists? Um, to understand New York City's transformation, uh, it's really helpful to understand the framework of the global city. Um, this is a, a term coined by Saskia Sassen. She's a professor up at Columbia um, and wrote this book of the same name. Um, Urbanist Aaron Wren has offered that there are uh, four characteristics of a global city. Um, one is that it's an advanced producer services production node. Um, two is it's an economic giant. Three, it's an international gateway. And four, it's a political and cultural hub. I find it helpful to think of the 21st century global city as a site where all types of capital, economic, cultural, and social are aggregated. Um, and so for those of you here last week, you've seen this diagram, it's networks, structures. Uh, for those of you who don't, there's it's three basic network structures, centralized, decentralized, and distributed. Um, so it kind of helps to think of um, global cities like New York, London, Paris, and Shanghai as hubs in a global network for the distribution of capital. Uh, and Aaron Wren uh, notes that over the past decade or so, the global city game has become effectively a balanced scorecard attempt to determine the world's biggest and baddest cities. It's really a decentralized network with each of the major global cities serving as a, as a web around the globe for moving capital, aggregating major amounts of capital and then moving them around the globe. So according to uh, Knight Frank Global Cities Survey, cities with the largest forecast uplift in UH UHNWI populations, anybody? UHNWI? Ultra high net worth individuals. 
so uh, their global city survey uh, says that Sao Paulo, Istanbul, and Shanghai are all emerging market leaders. So this is, this is the market leaders in 2013. This is 2014. This is projected for 2024 global cities, the most powerful global cities with the most concentration of ultra high net worth individuals. <laughs> Basically, from 2004 to 2014, Mayor Bloomberg transformed New York City from a merely world-class city to a global city. Um, and to understand uh, the, the, the past decade, you kind of have to expand your frame a little um, to uh, 20 years and go back to 94 with Giuliani. Um, Giuliani did a lot to change the city, but he was still like basically a New Yorker. He was, he was, he was pugnacious, he was tribal, he was very local, like, like he was a very New York guy. He was not you know, a cosmopolitan guy. Bloomberg, on the other hand, came into office already a very cosmopolitan billionaire. You know, he was like much more comfortable at like Davos Economic Forum than in the Bronx, you know, and he sort of he did a really good job of performing populism, but he was already moving in the world of sort of finance and design and and thinkers that are that are thinking about the global city and how capital moves around the globe. So um, I made this little diagram. Um, this is Bloomberg one. Uh, he got elected. And from my impression, like he sort of had to deal with 9/11, the triage after 9/11. So his first term was really about recovery and um, tr and triage and sort of getting you know anybody who was here back then knows how sort of you can't you can't overstate <laughs> the impact of that on, on the city psychologically and economically and everything wise. So, so really his first term was all about sort of dealing with 9-11 and recovering. But his second term, um, there, one of the really important things to note is that there was a global economic recovery, right? So the, the world economy had been very, very weak and anemic and all the way through 2003 and then in 2004 there was a world economic recovery and, and around the world markets began to recover and, and boom again. Um, so um, Bloomberg, you know, in 2004 he brought the RNC here, the Republican National Convention, which was a real bid to sort of be a national player, like political national player. Um, in 2005 he made the major bid for the West Side Stadium. Uh, to, to ho house the 2012 Olympics, and that was a tough fight. He was not happy to lose it. Um, he really invested a lot in um, technological and entrepreneurial innovation. Um, he upgraded the city's website and information systems for, you know, 311, for instance. Um, and if you go to the website now, like it's much more. You know, it's a, he really opened up the data of the city and really made your sort of user experience online of how the city government operates um, very, very different and, and clean. Um, he strategically deployed the quasi-governmental New York City Economic Development Corporation to helm major redevelopment projects. Um, and that's, Economic Development Corporation is kind of this huge quasi-governmental thing that allows you to do massive development projects without the sort of fuss and muss of the city council so much. Um, and so that's, you know, so, you know, you have like sort of the Barclay Center starts here, it doesn't finish till here. You have another building boom. Um, you also have the second dot-com boom, um, and I'll get to that later, but like social media uh, kicks off in like 2004, 2005. Um, um, then you have another global economic crisis here. Uh, and we're still sort of recovering from that. 
Um, but uh, along with the sort of uh, uh, tech and entrepreneurial initiatives that Bloomberg was doing, he also um, designed really ambitious long-term initiatives like Green NYC and Plan NYC 2030, like sustainability initiatives, environmental initiatives, all this stuff that's really about quality of life and sustainability. But it's also um, expensive and it also sort of prioritizes some things over other things. So, you know, it's, it's like I said, I'm trying to stay as sort of value neutral on this and just sort of stick to what it looks like happened. Um, but also because of his, his role as a billionaire and a successful businessman, he really worked hard to exert his influence and presence nationally and internationally. So he would appear you know, at the World Global Cities Mayor's Forum or you know, he would do his positions on guns or you know, he, 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 really, uh, and, and, uh, he really wanted to assert like New York as a national and international um, political and cultural hub. So from the smoking ban to bike lanes to Barclays Center, Bloomberg changed New Yorkers' experiences and expectations of the city. So if we go through sort of these bullets point by point, now the financial services sector has long been New York City's uh, biggest revenue base um, and Bloomberg worked to rev uh, what the, uh, diversify the revenue streams, right? So um, New York you know, has always been a media capital but a lot of that went out to LA. Um, and, and New York became more of an auteur city, you know, sort of like Woody Allen, you know, like, like smaller films. And, and, and New York, uh, and under Bloomberg, um, the mayor's office for television and film became like the mayor's office for television, film, media, all kinds of stuff. And um, he really, m you know, made lots of tax breaks and incentives to bring media back here. Um, so it became home to many more television shows, uh, movies, um, commercial production, um, and he incentivized new media entrepreneurs by creating startup incubators. He brought Google here and other tech giants to the city. Um, they did the deal for the Technion Cornell Innovation Institute um, at Cornell Tech, which is going to be out on Roosevelt Island. Um, and, it, and that really served as a sort of visible centerpiece for Bloomberg's ambition to um, turn New York City into a capital uh, for STEM, uh, which is a science, technology, engineering, and medicine? Math? Math, I should know. STEAM is with arts in there, right, so STEM to STEAM. Like it's funny to think back to it, but in May 2005, Excel Partners invested $12.7 million in Facebook, and uh, in July of that year, um, MySpace was acquired uh, by News Corp for $580 million. <laughs> uh, it seems ridiculous, but it's... <laughs> Uh, but 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 social media actually you know you can't once again it's like social media really transformed both the 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 economic and financial base of the city but it also transformed our experience of the city and I'll come back to that in a minute um, the next you know bullet point economic giant I mean I think that kind of is self-explanatory uh, we you know New York is um, and has been and will in all likelihood continue to be a world, the economic giant of the world. Um, so um, international gateway. So the global economic recovery of 2004 brought the financial sector in New York roaring back to life, but actually the dollar was weaker than other currencies in the world. And um, 
so it spurred an influx of foreign investment. So you had a lot of foreign companies coming here, opening up offices, buying real estate, um, diversifying their presence and increasing their presence. Um, and um, that also attracted um, cosmopolitan executives from global corporations. So you just had this influx of sort of a global cosmopolitan class buying up real estate and moving to New York or buying a pied-a-terre in the East Village or whatever. And, um, and then a lot of high-value workers in financial services, tech, design, branding, global commerce all you know making homes here or second homes or third homes or whatever um, and then as a political and cultural hub I already mentioned that you know the mayor really you know wanted to uh, you know share the policies that he was doing here with with other mayors from around the world um, so he really you know increased his presence on the world stage and uh, and, the, and the national stage um, and Invested a lot, also uh, in, in New York, becoming an, uh, an increased producer and consumer of global cultural content, including entertainment, media, design, technology, and the arts. And we'll get back to that shortly. So one of the one of the things that um, we don't, you know, it, it's like that thing where like you don't notice it because it's happening all the time, and then one day you're like, what happened? Um, is the transformed built environment? Um, you know, this is like this is Cooper Square in 1957. And this is Cooper Square today. Um, and that particular um, uh, structure was built by a company, designed by a company called Morphosis. Um, and you know, this sort of curvy, futuristic, silvery, shiny thing, that's really characteristic of a lot of the construction that's happened. I mean, there's been a lot, a lot, a lot of construction over the past 10 years. Um, and you'll see um, Frank Geary, uh, Calatrava down at the World Trade Center. Um, shop Architects has pretty much every, the entire East River waterfront has been Shop, shop Architects. Um, and they're working on a couple other projects. So our street level experience of of, of the city. You know, this is actually a pretty daunting interface if we think of like architecture as interface, as user experience. Um, it's kind of hard to tell where to go in. You're not sure if you're actually welcome to go. You know, all of a sudden, like, it's not just like, oh, there's no place to get a $3 egg sandwich anymore. There's actually like a sort of architectural, um, a performance of the city through architecture that, that is sending us a very different message. Um, so the other piece of this building and the, and the influx of, of wealthy people is um, according re to a recent report from the city comptroller's office, the medium, median apartment rents in the city have increased 75% since 2000, while median real incomes have dropped by nearly 5% during that same period, according to a report, uh, recent report. Okay. So over the past decade, 400,000 affordable housing units renting for $1,000 or less have disappeared. The, the largest average rent increases occurred in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn Heights and Fort Greene, median rents jumped by 58% to $14.74 a month from $9.33. Um, and that obviously the cost of living has changed the demographic makeup and geographic distribution of the population. Um, you can read the report, you know, in depth for yourself at the Center for Urban Research website. Uh, it's, it's, a division, it's a research division at CUNY. Um, but the short per version is that between 2000 and 2010, um, New York City's population increased by 2.1%, which is 166,855 people, and has just kept growing, you know, in the intervening four years. Right. And, 
This is where it gets kind of interesting. I mean, it's all interesting. But the white population grew by 38,774, and blacks lost almost 50,000 people. So blacks were, losses were substantial. Also, it's most notable in, in, in communities with historically large black populations. Um, the black population in Crown Heights was down 12%, Flatbush down 14%, Prospect, Lefferts Gardens down 12%, Bedford 15%. Um, in Prospect Heights, the white population share increased from just over one quarter to almost half. In Clinton Hill, the white population share doubled from 15% to over 35%. And in Williamsburg, whites increased their share of the population from 34% to 52%, while the Latino population declined by almost 25%, moving from a population share of 57% in 2000 to just under 38% in 2010. So in practical terms, basically, like, the city got way whiter <laughs> and all of the people of color sort of got pushed, not all, but many, many got pushed out. Um, and um, so as you had this influx of foreign um, cosmopolitan executives and, and um, more creative industry workers and so forth and so on and more sort of middle class and people of color and pushed out. Um, also, um, as the city got um, whiter, and thus was perceived as safer, affluent white Americans no longer daunted by New York City's rough reputation continued to move here or subsidize their children who wanted to live here, um, thus fundamentally changing the socioeconomic profiles of the people who comprise New York City's public. Um, this is just, I just had some fun. I sort of started with Taxi Driver and the media representations of New York and then I went to sort of like Barney Miller, and you remember that TV show. I, I was like Barney Miller, and, and um, that's Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I, there's someone should write a thesis about that. Um, but then we sort of have Taxi, then, then, then Seinfeld is kind of like the, the, the watershed moment where, where New York becomes, oh, we could move there, that's funny. And then, <laughs> and then friends show us that our friends are there, and then Felicity shows us that you can have, you can go to NYU. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then the girls from the Sex and the City, uh, and uh, this is the kids from Kids, which sort of romanticizes a New York that actually doesn't, I, I don't know, like I think it was kind of on the cusp of vanishing, I don't really know. And then this is the new one, this is Broad City, have you guys seen this? I gotta say, like, it's super funny, but at the same time, I had this really weird thing, because they had this one episode where they, like, got, they stripped down to their underwear and cleaned Fred Armisen's apartment, and it was played like super high comedy, and it was, but then I was thinking, you know, when I was growing up, I was reading like the Basketball Diaries and, you know, stuff where like if a young girl were to strip to her underwear and clean some guy's apartment, that was like a really humiliating experience that you did to make rent. Like, I don't, I like, I like, it's just interesting how times have changed and how our perception of the city has changed and that's really complicated in my brain. So okay. if all these people have moved out and a lot of people have moved in in the past 10 years, in practical terms, this demographic shift means that there are many, many, many people living in New York City now who did not live here prior to 9-11 or even 2004 and they have no lived experience of the city as it was. So for better or for worse, they have no point of reference for a more racially, culturally, and economically diverse New York. Um, the New York they're coming to is the New York that they know and they have no idea that it was ever any different. Um, no lived experience of it being any different. 
So the parallel economic, demographic, and infrastructural changes converged with a different performance and philosophy of government. I already mentioned the website, nyc.gov, 3.11. And I think that that transformed, this is my speculation, I think it transformed New Yorkers' sense of themselves as a public. It sort of shifted everyone from being citizens to, to consumers and, and the government as a provider of services, and we are consumers of the government's services. Um, and the redevelopment also steadily encroached on New York City's liminal spaces, nightclubs, performance spaces, galleries, and bars that catered to culturally and economically diverse audiences. Um, they became less economically viable, and very few of them are now still in existence. So um, the likelihood of serendipitous encounters with difference decreased as neighborhoods became increasingly culturally and economically homogenous. And I just sort of, this is a, a club that used to be in the meatpacking district called um, Mother, and they used to have a party there called Jackie 60. And the reason I point to that is because uh, it was in, when the meatpacking district was still pretty grody. And uh, some of you might know Richard Move, the choreographer. He developed um, Martha at Move, at Mother there. The reason I'm, uh, the reason I'm using uh, Richard as an example, and Martha at, uh, Martha at Mother as an example, is because they would have, they had this verbal abuse, like they had literature, they had performance art, they had dance, and, it, and, it, and, and when you would go, like you might on any given night see like Richard, you know, you'd see like Martha and Mother, and there'd be Debbie Harry, and they'd be, you know, Mikhail Baryshnikov, and there'd be like Princess von Dubenstein Gubin or whatever, and then there'd be like some tranny hooker that just wandered in off the street. And you had this like real, mix of, of people, or like there used to be a really great dance party called Body and Soul down at Vinyl. It was like a tea dance, so it was Sunday afternoon. And, you know, um, and there were these, you know, there were just places that were, the barriers to entry weren't that high economically. Everyone was welcome, and there was a sense that, you know, you were constantly mixing it up and meeting people that were different than you. And, um, and I also put, I put the box there because, when all of these places closed, the box hired to, you know, everybody to do their uh, burlesque shows for bottle service crowds that had to pay four or five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars. So, so, so what was once sort of like a very democratic, inclusive, freewheeling uh, uh, environment that was turned into that. One of the other ideas driving economic transformation was the idea of public-private partnerships as cities sort of struggled with funding all this stuff. They were like, let's do public-private partnerships because um, there's this you know, belief that private sector does things better. Um, and um, so what that did was that introduced more private capital into the public sector. Um, and this has two uh, major effects. One is that like, the decision makers in government were increasingly drawn from um, the higher echelons of the corporate private sector, whether they had any public sector experience or not. Um, the, the most sort of notable was uh, Kathy Black, the education person. Uh, who had no experience in education. Um, and um, the other thing is that many previously public spaces, mostly city parks, came under like public-private partnerships, so partially private ownership. So, um, and that, they also accelerated, uh, from what I can tell, the, um, in the, uh, the creation of publicly owned private, privately owned public spaces, or POPs. Um, and this is the POPs website. It's a, there's an advocacy group for privately owned public spaces. Um, so Zuccotti Park is probably the most famous publicly owned, uh, privately owned public space. And it really blurs the line between public and private, and, and thus it really influences the rules of public behavior and assembly. So, um, 
increasingly like public assembly in New York has become difficult and um, as private spaces become more expensive exclusive and divided people are less likely to encounter people who are different than them um, and then the other piece that I was talking about before, social media, is that um, the ubiquity of, of social media uh, not only spurred the economy, but it also changed all the New Yorkers, uh, New Yorkers' uh, relationship to physical place. Um, because A, the city became much more navigable, because um, you could always know where you are and where you were going. Um, you always know where your friends are and what they're doing. Um, who has eaten and drank and done whatever they've done at a specific place um, because they reviewed it and put it on Yelp. Um, but so, you know, a, a side effect of that is that, is that um, accident is, is, less, is more rare. Um, getting lost is more rare. Um, unmediated experience of sort of discovering something that, you know, just by wandering around is, you, you know, you go to specific places to meet specific people and nothing's probably going to happen to you between point A and point B. Another um, sort of issue with sort of performing public in New York is that um, because so much of the population has no lived experience of New York prior and because they live in a more you know, siloed city and are less likely to serendipitously encounter difference and because they have tools that allow them to sort of block out that difference, um, they don't necessarily value or th that cultural and economic diversity so much or, or rather um, the appearance of diversity and inclusion in the performance of, every, of everyday life is sufficient for most people living here rather than actual diversity and inclusion. It feels good. It feels like we're inclusive. So, so of course, this is, kind of, this is a dead horse, but I want to I hit it anyway. Um, the demise of old media. Um, you know, basically, there's just, you know, there was like this sort of like, and this is, I'm going to come back to this. This all has to do with the arts, I promise, um, and performance specifically. But, you know, there was, you know, the, the, the voice and a long time ago, the East Village Other, weekly Soho News, the Times is sort of perpetual. You know, these have all pretty much died. Um, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. The Times persists. Now we have like a plethora of other voices, um, lots and lots and lots of other voices. But, but the middle has been squeezed so much um, and the economics have shifted that, that this whole bunch of, of smaller voices and even mid-sized voices, they don't actually have the ability to shape public opinion. They're pretty good for like consumer guides but they're, and like what to do, but they're not actually sort of, you know, doing the sort of hard-hitting um, opinion-making journalism that The Voice and even the New York Press used to do. Um, and, and I was just thinking about this, I just throw this out there to share with people, is like one of the things that, you know, made The Voice viable you know, so The Voice was founded by Norman Mailer and some other people as like, you know, a counter, a counter-cultural thing to, to offer a different perspective than the Times and the mainstream culture. But its business model rested in no small part to all the, all the, all the sex ads at the back of the book and, you know, and the, and the personals and the, all that kind of stuff. And I, and I was thinking about this, I was like, the thing was is that because it was paper and because there was a back of the book, you could have pages and pages and pages of like, hooker ads and it wouldn't feel like it was encroaching on Nat Hentoff or you know uh, any a grail market or whoever was writing social and political and cultural criticism um, there was a physical division between the sex trade and the porn and you know the cultural criticism when the internet happened you couldn't do that right like I can't go like like flavor pill can't put you know hooker ads on the front um, and nor can the village voice. So 
um, it's just interesting, like the revenue, so, so, so the revenue streams that supported hard-hitting journalism downtown in a cultural, counter-cultural milieu went away, mostly because you could no longer have the appearance. Uh, the whole reason the Village Voice could do those ads was because the counter-cultural downtown milieu is supposed to be cool with that on some level, I suppose. Um, and since a lot of this, these lectures were inspired, in fact, by a huge kerfuffle about downtown, I thought I'd just sort of try and you know, take this on a little bit. This is my little map of the, of the evolution of downtown. This is um, Charles Henry Ford's uh, The Young and Evil. It, it was published in 1933, and it was published uh, uh, by Olympia Press, I think, or Olympia. And it, uh, it did not benefit from its aspiration to be Gertrude Stein. But, um, but it's, a, it's one of the earliest queer sort of uh, Romain Acclay uh, village, Greenwich Village novels. Um, and then, you know, and then you have the West Village kind of, or the village, it was just the village then. Um, and then in the 50s, I, I put, you know, Frank O'Hara's lunch poems and all the abstract expressions near the Cedar Tavern. Um, Ginsburg in the East Village. And you, you sort of see it like, uh, I can't remember now where I put everybody. This is Soho in the 70s. Um, this is the 90s, this is the New Eurekan Poets Cafe, and you sort of see as like, this gentrifies, this gentrifies, and now we're out there somewhere. Um, so, but what, like, so downtown, like people, you know, and I've been really thinking a lot about it, I think um, it's always been more of a vague idea than, than a tangible aesthetic, and as you can see, it's, it's, it's shifted over time and it's moved geographically over time. I think it's more of a milieu uh, uh, rather than a movement. Um, so I would say that like characteristics of downtown include bohemianism, um, counter-cultural, sort of non-bourgeois, politically radical, um, queer in, in some sense or another, uh, both sexually and ideologically, um, culturally diverse and inclusive, um, aesthetically avant-garde, tolerant, or at least laissez-faire, and sexually free. And I think that those are all sort of um, things that we associate with, with, with downtown and Bohemia. And that was, at earlier times, what brought people here. Because when you lived in Atlanta or you lived in wherever, like you couldn't be that there. The social mores were too, too rigid and restrictive. Um, so there have been significant aesthetic movements that have originated downtown, you know, obviously minimalism, postmodern dance, experimental theater, abstract expressionism. Um, but, and they talked about this in the New York Live Arts Bill chat uh, about this. Many of those artists identified uh, as downtown by like the New York Times or by the culture at large. You know, they identified themselves first by their artistic practice and ideas, and only incidentally by their social and political position. Um, the milieu of downtown gave them the social freedom to pursue their idiosyncratic visions by valuing creativity, imagination, and self-expression over making money. But, um, but they didn't identify primarily as downtown. Downtown was uh, a, a sort of autonomous zone where creative freedom was encouraged. Um, but that milieu of downtown is really only viable in an economically and culturally diverse New York where artists don't need to professionalize to survive. The economic reality of a global city is that this milieu uh, is not viable. Um, and I would say that by and large in New York there's not a sizable audience um, or public uh, who wants art that reflects 
those values and concerns because they aren't the values of, and concerns of the culture at large. Um, and, and I think that um, the other, you know, and, and, and this is really complicated, and I can't unpack it here, but, but it has a lot to do with um, uh, progress, actually, which is like, you know, uh, mainstreaming of things that were previously marginal, um, gay marriage, um, uh, and, 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 and it gets really complicated because privilege exists, yeah. privilege exists throughout that. We, you know, we still have. So what does this have to do with the arts? Um, I'm going to go back to my decade of change map. Economic crisis, 9-11, blah, blah, blah. And then we have 2004. And what we, what's happening is that there's like all the artist-run organizations are really experiencing a push to professionalize. Um, PS122, DCW, The Kitchen. Um, now, in the, late, in, the, in the last economic boom before the crash of 2000 was when DTW started its building project. Um, and the building project finally gets concluded around 2004. And David White, who was the leader of that organization for a long time, leaves. And they kind of go into turmoil. <laughs> Um, and I would actually, I would actually theorize that the merger with Bill T. Jones' uh, company is actually a logical fruition of what was set into motion in the late '90s. That you need some, like, the vision of this kind of like place where you can charge a lot and sort of glam, you know, building stuff. That uh, I don't think it was on purpose, but I think that like he, he brings the sort of star power and money to the table that would allow that vision to be implemented more fully. Um, once again, I'm not, you know, good or bad. It's just I think it is. Uh, Mark Russell leaves PS122 that year, um, and um, after a year of search, Vallejo Gantner comes. Uh, Elise Bernhardt, uh, who founded Dancing in the Streets and ran the Kitchen, uh, leaves the Kitchen. Um, oh, I said Oscar Wolf, but that's wrong. It's supposed to be George Wolf, and he leaves the public. <laughs> And Oscar Eustace comes in, and it's really interesting because because it's like a weird, it's like a complication, right? Because Oscar, you know, is sort of known as a populist. Um, George was kind of known for trying to get stuff onto Broadway, but what you're, but so Mar, so but but it's kind of interesting, right? Because then the public takes this this sort of aesthetic shift to us, but it, but it gentrifies populism, <laughs> which is kind of fascinating, and, and we're really seeing that now. Um, and like, there's, it's complicated. Um, I want to make clear this is not, I just know PS122 because I worked there for a very long time, so I know it better than any of the other places. But like, you know, Mark and Vallejo are very different. Um, you know, Mark, you know, is uh, from the Midwest and then from Texas and sort of came here um, with a very sort of like downtown Grotowski, you know, and, and started the thing. You know, Vallejo is um, very international, very global, uh, very contemporary. Has a, and and I think that like it's symbolic actually of the of this shift that happens in 2004. And I'll come back to that later. Um, but so all the arts run organizations are pushed to professional. You know, everyone's investing in capital projects, building buildings. Um, there's this big leadership turnover. Who's pushing out? Uh, funders. That's what. I, that's my impression. Uh, all of them. I mean, you don't. Not individual foundations. I mean, and it's it's just too big to go into now. But um. And I, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, like what we found in the Brooklyn Commune report is there was like a shift. <coughs> foundations. When the NEA came under attack, foundations stepped in to fill the gap, and then there was this Sarbanes-Oxley Act that was introduced that 
created really big um, compliance hurdles. So I think that there was this sense of like these not-for-profits are really reckless and they need to be accountable for how they spend the money. And so it's not like, it's not some evil plan. It's just like we need to be accountable for the money that we're giving you and, it, and therefore you need to be able to deliver us the reports. And in order for you to deliver supports, you have to have a certain level of professionalism. And I think that that's really, you know, the economic crash here made everyone look at their books, really, you know, <laughs> kind of go, why are we always in the red? Why are we always broke? What the hell's going on? So there was this, you know, real sense of, I mean, that's, that's once I said this anecdotal and from what I've talked to other people, this really merits some, you know, much more rigorous investigation, but that's my sense. Um, to professionalize the way their administration runs. So you don't sell carnival tickets at the box office, you use ticketing software. You don't just keep your donor letters in a file, you adopt Razor's Edge. You, um, you know, you hire someone with a master's degree in arts administration rather than someone with lived experience. We talk about this a lot, like the gala is a perfect example of like, nobody likes them, nobody enjoys them, they take a lot of work, they don't ever make like as much money as, you know, you think, like everyone's invested in this one huge event that's supposed to subsidize the whole year. You know, people divert all of their staff resources to making this one event. You know, like there's gotta be a better way, right? But so, um, but this is, but this sort of huge grand gala thing has really happened more in the past ten years. So in 2003, you know, the PS122 gala was called the fucking gala, and it was upstairs, <laughs> and it was upstairs, you know, in the, you know, and there were 15 tables, and you know, Eric Bogosian did a thing, and Lucy Sexton got naked, and everyone gave their checks and got drunk and went home. You know, the next year when Mark had left, it was a big thing at Capitol, you know, down on the whatever Bowery or whatever, and you know, and and you know, it was a big show, and it was Meredith Monk and Anthony and you know, and Streb, and you know, it was celebrating Mark. It was great, but like the level of production, the level of the thing was like off the hook. Now, fast forward 10 years, and tonight, you know, the PS1 22 Gala is hosted by Justin Vivian Bond and Michael Stipe. And, you know, has appearances of like Neil Patrick Harris, and um, Shara Warden, and, um, Ira Glass, and, and, and it's at the Paramount Hotel. So, I mean, I'm not, once again, like, I'm not, it's not like a judgy thing, it's just like the total difference of, 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 of culture. And artist-run spaces being transformed into, like, big enterprises, um, where the artist is kind of comes last. I think I can skip through some of this stuff because I'm kind of babbling at this point. Um, but this is sort of like the 80s, this is the 90s. <laughs> um, um, I actually have a, you know, maybe it's because I moved here in the 90s, but I think it was a really cool time because the first dot-com boom hit and it was awesome because there was all this money and all these crazy people with crazy money that like were 25 and just wanted like, you know, they couldn't believe that old men in suits were giving them checks. So, you know, so you actually had this kind of amazing, you know, you kind of had this amazing moment where like, you know, dot-coms would hire, you know, you know, Kiki and Herb, or, you know, you just like, you know, you could just eat out on, you know, canapes at openings and get tchotchkes all the time in the late 90s. It was pretty cool. Um, 
and, 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 you know, and, and it was a really, like, I put this in here because this is like, it goes to sort of the evolution. I first saw Kiki and Herb at, um, this, this was a space, did anyone, anyone know that John Cameron M Mitchell movie, Short Bus? Okay, so that was based on this place in Dumbo called Dumba, and it was a, like a radical queer anarchist collective, and every June they would have a, um, uh, a, a, a gay shame, like, you know, crazy punk rock thing. And like, you know, and so, you know, at that, like, so Kiki, you know, like when Kiki and Herb came out in this dumpy loft, beer soaked people, you know, singing like, you know, um, Wu-Tang Clan, you know, like that was like a thing. Anyway. Um, <laughs> liminal spaces. Um, and then this is sort of the 2000s. And I don't really want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but um, I think like, because I, I first put this together for a, for a class on gender and sexuality and performing the city, performing cosmopolitanism. And I actually think that like, um, you know, so these are different artists that sort of deal with that in different ways. Um, I, I, I personally, I think that like, I'm, I'm really, really, really ad admiring the trans artists right now. Um, there seems to be, um, in, in this city where, where um, homogeneity and sort of like encounters with difference, uh, you know, are less like, they see, they're sort of, I feel like really bravely um, tackling with their bodies and their minds and their creative imagination some of the most complicated problems of our culture. And um, I just want to you know, shout out to trans artists. Um, oh, the influence of non-American curators. I'll come back to that. Uh, just changes in public art. Um, changes in the delivery systems of public art. So like that's the BMW Guggenheim lab. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so it's just interesting like to compare the Gramsci monument, which was the Hirschhorn piece about um, uh, honoring uh, Gramsci, who was a communist thinker, um, versus you know the BMW Guggenheim lab, which is a corporate funded thing about innovating the city. Um, and the delivery systems, you know, are not so grassroots anymore. Um, and then there's the gentrification of socially engaged art. Socially engaged art, which used to be called like community art or all kinds of other things. And so, you know, and this has to do with the visual art sort of rediscovering performance. And I'll talk more about that um, next week when we talk about the arts market, the performing arts market. But, um, and that's a pretty significant shift too. In 2005 is the first performa. Um, and that's also when Marina Abramovich did her first big uh, like retrospective piece. And so you really see this, um, oh yeah, oh, I was gonna talk about that. Okay, so um, Glenn Lowry at TEDx in Athens talking about how Occupy was okay, but it really didn't mean anything until um, the museum co-opted um, that impulse and Marina did the artist is present. It's an amazing video if you can find it. Um, this is um, um, James Franco and Laurel Nakadate doing performance art. Um, if, if, if his performance art is almost as good as his Cindy Sherman work. Um, and this is Marina and Jay-Z. So I'm coming back to the, the global city um, about an international gateway. So um, there was like a Facebook kerfuffle uh, a few months back when they announced the new head of the World Trade Center Performing Arts because uh, he's from England. And, uh, but he's actually from South Africa originally and I think that 
anyway. Um, but and and there was this whole thing about like oh, it's like well, okay. But if you look around, like like Alex Poots at the Armory, Klaus Biesenbach at MoMA, Simon Dub and Gideon Lester and Lily Chopra at Fiaf, Vallejo at PS One Twenty Two, Jens Hoffman, I think he's at Jewish Museum. So all, many of the culturing leading cultural figures in this city of, are many of them are white, most of them are male, very few of them are from the states, um, and much less from NYC. So. Um, and I think, it, like, and I, I, I want to talk about this more in the, a couple weeks when I talk about uh, uh, performance and an exhibition because we tend to lump them all together, but the Whitney is actually very different from the new museum, it's different from MoMA, and that requires unpacking. But, um, but I think it bears noticing that in the global city where we have, you know, seeking to attract ultra high income ultra high net worth individuals that the cultural elite of these institutions is largely populated by by white male Europeans um, and so the, the 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 impact in artists is that um, usually the work that will receive funding and support you know will is work that will thrive in a global performing arts market and that is subject to their tastes and, and predilections. For artists seeking to live and work in New York City, um, I just put together some pictures of my pals. Uh, that means a radically different set of expectations and practices. The cost of living here is not going to decrease. The amount of money you will need to stay here and make the work will increase. And the amount of time you spend trying to make the money to make the work will, in all likelihood, increase. The bulk of the capital coming into the system will continue to go to organizations, not to artists. Although, side note, it'll be interesting to see what Mayor de Blasio does, because uh, he, does, he, he is a progressive, and, I, and uh, I'm just sort of extemporaneously saying that I think this actually might be a really good moment for grassroots arts organizations to start thinking about how they can appeal to his progressive sensibilities. Um, and, 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 and build coalitions that would be responsive to his sense of politics uh, as opposed to the previous mayors. Um, uh, uh, so, okay, the bulk of the capital will continue to go to organizations, not artists, and as the organizations continue to professionalize and they come under increasing pressure to maximize revenue and demonstrate impact, they will continue to hold on to the lion's share of that capital. It will not be invested in artists to make work, and artists will not have uh, very much access to philanthropic funds to make work. Um, it seems almost inevitable that the artists living in New York City will be those who can afford to do so, and the support of formerly artist-run spaces will go to a smaller and smaller elite pool of artists who make work that fits the aesthetic criteria of those cultural tastemakers, this elite group of mostly white international men. As New York City continues to assert its dominance as a major hub in a global network of economic, social, and cultural capital, it will focus its artist support to those individuals and initiatives that further those costs. Okay, so this is a crisis for artists that are here. It may be less of a crisis for people that are coming here who are already prepared to deal with what it's going to be like here or what it is like here, um, or people who come here who have economic uh, support from outside the system. And one of the things we talked about in Brooklyn Commune is the idea of the remittance, um, which is like in global um, labor, it's like if you are a maid, a Filipina maid here, and you send money back to the Philippines, that money is called a remittance. And so one can look at the arts in New York as sort of like the Philippines and your wealthy family elsewhere as working in America and sending the money back to subsidize you here. Um, I only I, I only say that because it, because this because it's not just about the, like it's about the arts, but it's also not just about the arts. And and 
as the arts are a fundamentally like human practice and an embodied practice and something that requires humans to make and experience, like it's there's this thing right about like human value, <laughs> the value of human beings. Um, so um, so one imagines that given those situations, there will be increasingly presence of artists who are related to or closely affiliated with the ultra high net worth individuals that the global city seeks to attract. That being said, not all doom and gloom, people are coming up with new strategies and um, um, there's a lot of people doing really cool stuff. Um, Wage is the working artist in the greater economy and Ants is one of the sort of super awesome dance things it's totally a radical economy and um they really walk the walk this is feast which is no longer in existence or no longer happening funding emergent art with sustainable tactics wasn't actually sustainable but um <laughs> but it was like a cool idea um and uh panoply performance lab is um uh, esther and uh um uh and and brian and 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 last year they did the uh, the Brooklyn International Performance Art Festival, which was a really awesome, very radical curatorial strategy and inclusive and market resistance and um, I, I, I thought really awesome. Um, and then new models, um, um, Our Goods, which is Caroline Woolard's uh, project. It's a barter economy. I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think League of Kitchens is a fun thing that uh, uh, Lisa Gross started and it started as a sort of uh, she, 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 the League of Kitchens is an immersive culinary adventure in NYC where immigrants teach intimate cooking workshops in their homes. But it's kind of like a, an art strategy. And then this is my new project, Agents of Awesome. And new alliances. Um, tipping point, um, positive feedback. Um, Oh, this was so the, the tipping point, positive feedback, and uh, artist as citizen are all related around sustainability. Um, that's Dino's project. <laughs> um, uh, art, science, and climate change. Um, Freelancers Union, we had some really good talks with them with Brooklyn Commune. And one of the things that we really realized is that artists, the precarity of artists is, is we're looking at that like, uh, we're looking at that as something that is, um, you know, our sphere of, of influence is, is, is local, but our sphere of concern is global. And the precarity of artists in this economy is one that is shared by workers everywhere um, as we move towards a gig economy. Um, so how do we help each other and build infrastructural support to, you know, survive? Um, one side note, because I've been thinking about a lot about this, and. Um, does anybody here know who Harry Hay is? Okay, so Harry Hay is the founder of the gay rights movement, gay liberation movement, and um, he's someone I think about a lot because he was, um, he, his pivotal, um, the reason I'm talking about this now in New Alliances is that his pivotal insight was uh, that gay people were not a disaggregated set of individuals with a pathology. He said, we are not you know, we are not mentally ill individuals. We are a collective, a community, a disenfranchised cultural minority that is being denied their basic civil rights. And it took him like 10 years, like his first meeting of the Madison Society had five people and it took him like 10 years to get to 100. But <laughs> Like, but that pivotal insight, that pivotal shift 
of saying we are not disaggregated individuals and we're not fucked up. We're a collective. We're a group. And he was deeply steeped in Marxist ideology, so you know it's a little tricky to talk about these days, but, um, but, it's, but I think it's a really important cognitive shift. When we and, and, and that's why I'm saying new alliances because I, because he was also like of privilege he was from a wealthy family, um, and you know he would go and he would see you know he he would see the commonality between like that gay sailor and you know and that Hollywood star in the closet and whatever he's saying this is a collective so I think that there's like some I mean I think there's it's it's a model. Um, and, and, you know, and one of the reasons I talk about the freelancers union is because, like, as artists, where, where do we have commonality? And then where do we have commonality with other people in the human economy? Educators, healthcare, you know, anyone who actually is invested in sort of, like, non-revenue driven <laughs> enterprises. Like, like, where is their commonality and how do we build a sense of identity around that to create mass and then create change? Um, so the crisis in New York City, along those lines, um, is actually an opportunity for everywhere else in America. Um, because everywhere else in America actually has um, time <laughs> and space and quality of life that we can't have here. And um, so if other cities and regions you know, are, are strategic, um, they can develop, you know, they can attract really high quality artists who would otherwise live in New York City um, and they can develop stronger creative ecologies there. Um, and then as New York City becomes a sort of distribution hub for the global cultural market, other places can become nodes for research development and cultural production. Um, and I really think, you know, from my experience of traveling around, the biggest problem is um, the lack of discourse, honestly. Um, we, we, ha we don't have discourse here. Um, we talk a lot about a lot of things, but we never actually talk about what makes art good and what makes art not good, or what makes it successful and what doesn't make it successful. None of the curatorial voices ever articulate why they like what they like. Um, uh, funders don't articulate why they like what they like. So, so if we could start having that conversation here, and we could start sharing those conversations in an open way, then people, I mean, that's the thing you hear all the time, you know, a, 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 a contemporary performing arts center in another city will say, well, we just don't have any good artists here in our city, you know, and, and, usually, and it's rare that an artist in that city like somehow gets into the thing unless they come here. So, but if we would to increase the discourse here and then, and then really work to have a national discourse, you know, and it's starting to happen, you know, but so these are just some things that I pulled out, you know. Oh, so the thing about the cities is that right now we're in a decentralized network and New, New York City will loom large as a hub, but it is not beyond the realm of possibility that cities could develop strategies that would decentralize New York. The great thing about cultural capital is that it can be created without substantial material investment. Um, if other cities create the right conditions for artists to live and work, um, and get the psychic income that they need um, to create great work. Um, it's possible to, to, you know, even the playing field. So um, I'm just going to leave you with this, and then um, next week we'll come back and talk about if you if you can come back. <laughs> um, we'll talk about. Um, the market, the performing arts market here and how that's affected by all these and what that looks like. But I just want to say that like 
this is sort of where I'm at right now, and you know, I'm certainly open to debate on that, but it feels to me like systemic change requires behavioral change, which requires cognitive change. So what do we have to do to change the way we think that will help us change the way we behave and model different ways of behavior that will help us create systemic change? How do we help our, our friends and, and comrades, if you will, uh, individual actors in this system to, to, to behave differently and create change and, and I think we can do it. So thank you very much for your patience. We'll ask them.